Good morning. Yesterday, at six o'clock, Taoiseach Micheál Martin addressed the nation. Our journey through the pandemic has brought many twists and turns, and I have stood here and spoken to you on some very dark days. But today is a good day. Earlier, my government colleagues and I met to consider the latest report from the National Public Health Emergency Team. That report confirmed that we have weathered the Omicron storm. It confirmed that the rate of infection is reducing and that all of the key indicators on which we base our decisions have stabilised and are going in the right direction. It confirmed that Ireland's world-class vaccination programme and the rollout of boosters has utterly transformed our situation. It was our vaccinations and boosters that prevented the recent wave of infection translating into much more serious levels of illness and death. Based on this evidence, we've concluded that the rationale and justification for continuing most of our public health restrictions are no longer in place. Therefore, from 6am tomorrow morning, the majority of public health measures that we have had to live with will be removed. Such good news. But wow, was it unexpected. Or, as Ryan put it... What just happened? What indeed. Because after almost two years, Neffa's green light to government was, although anticipated, the extent of the easing. It's difficult to know how to feel or what to think. Brian O'Connell went onto the streets of Cork for the Clare Byrne Show. Good news, most restrictions are to go. What did you think? Were you happy enough with it? Oh, very happy with it. At last. At last, at long last. It's been a long two years. It's been a very long two years. And people will be glad to get back to some form of normality. Some mask wearing, it seems, will remain, but the COVID certs are likely to be gone. Yes, so I believe. What do you think of that? I'd be very glad the masks would stay. I would, really. What are the things you look forward to doing that maybe you missed out on in the last two years? Um, I would like to be able to meet up with people on a regular basis, as... I normally did, which all that was postponed, but would like to be able to move around more and not be fearful. Hopefully people will be careful as well. I think it's good. Hopefully the country will be back to normal and I think we've done very well so far. You'd be happy enough going in places now, not having to show your cert? Yeah, I suppose we have to at this stage, yeah. The the professionals have done a good job, the doctors have done a good job, uh, the government have done their best. What are the things you're looking forward to doing that you mightn't have done in the last year or two? Just seeing a bit of buzz about the place and a bit of life and activity. Because there were times, and particularly during the first lockdown, it was scary being in town where there was no one about. Everybody's down, it's brought in the country, came up a bit, you know. Shops open up, pubs open up, restaurants open up. Fantastic news. What's the thing you're looking forward to doing? To go for a late night point, to be honest. Eight o'clock, no good. You're going home there at eight o'clock when you're half drunk. And, you know, if it was more time, everybody can see you going home and drunk at eight o'clock. You know what I mean? Your neighbours be watching everybody <laughs> who watches it. So, with help of God, it works out. Brian O'Connell down in Cork for the Clare Byrne Show. Now that was in the AM. But scroll forward to about a quarter past six yesterday, just after the Taoiseach's address, and John Cook was in Flannery's Bar in Limerick City for drive time. This happened once Micheál Martin announced the lifting of of, uh, restrictions, or most of them from tomorrow. There was a big loud... (laughs) 
So while Michal Martin uh, is a very popular man here in Flannery's in, in uh, Limerick City this evening, he said we need to see each other smile. And Sarah, I can tell you people are smiling here. They're very happy uh, to know uh, that restrictions are being lifted on hospitality and most other COVID restrictions from 6am uh, tomorrow. And uh, so many people very happy uh, to hear that as well, even if it's not tonight, although I know many have been wondering uh, how stringent the eight o'clock closures will be uh, tonight in this and other pubs around the country. <laughs> how are you feeling to be told that, you know, we're, we're nearly there, perhaps? There may be further twists in the turns in the road. You heard in the, the speech from Hall Martin, the Taoiseach there, but there is a sense of freedom, maybe, and an optimism going forward? Absolutely, without a doubt, that goes without saying. Um, we all need this pub and we all need to be out socialising with everybody else in it. And that's... That's just it. We need to see people smile again, he said. We need to learn how to socialise again a bit, maybe, too. But you, you don't, you're, you're not too rusty on it here, I think. Oh, God, no, no. What about anyone else? Everybody feeling good? The Anos are fad. You're delighted, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, there'll be some crack this weekend. And Joe on Liveline put us this reaction. What are you looking forward to most now that it's over? Well, the restrictions oh, are over. Just not having to think. Just yeah. being able to go out and not having to think about where I'm going. Or and well, when when will you be trouble. back in Copperface Jacks, Sheila? Well, I don't know now. Yeah. When do they open? I, say, when I, they think, open up? I think tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> i meet you up there, Joe. Yeah. We'd play, we'd play, one of someone said play this song. Bringing the, the level of the conversation down. <laughs> this, is, this is what she'd be singing tomorrow morning. The I've old been person. north and I've been south and I've been east and west. <laughs> I've been just a <laughs> But anyway, we'll all be able to get out and at least, you know, it's just, it's just, I felt, honestly, Joe, it, I felt like I felt at the Good Friday Agreement. Sorry, go ahead, Sheila. We are talking there, you were. What were you saying? I felt, and this is, I felt like I felt at the Good Friday Agreement. Just this wonderful feeling of, you know, isn't this great? It's like the sensation you got on the, the in 1998 when they signed yes. the Good Friday Agreement. Yes. It's not an incredible description. A, a, a freedom. Yeah. And not just much of freedom, but just an a end way, to yeah, yeah, an awful time. A massive exhalation, a massive yes. uh, 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 breathing exercise where you just, your shoulders yeah. went down and you yeah. said, oh, that's Thanks great. Thank God. Or God. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah, God yeah. that's over. Maybe not quite over yet, Joe, as you sashay out of studio, but close perhaps. However, after two long, fraught years... The mood's mixed, as evidenced by these textures into Sarah. James has texted us to 51551. He says, delighted for the end of restrictions, Sarah, but would prefer a staggered approach. What's the rush? We may have finished with COVID, but it may not have finished with us. Frank says, I'm nervous. Social distancing should remain. Also, the COVID pass should remain. And Claire in Dublin says, on restrictions, I feel as though I have restriction whiplash. I think my head is still trying to process the high case numbers. And now, hot on the heels of that, the pandemic is over. My seatbelt isn't loosened. It's gone altogether, says Claire. Well, the government says the pandemic isn't over. It is the beginning of the end, though, by the looks of things. And you can keep your texts coming on all of that to 5-1. Right then, let's steady the ship ever so slightly and go back to the science. On Morning Ireland, Dr Gerald Barry, Assistant Professor of Virology at UCD, joined Gavin. Are you surprised at the pace of this? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a friend sent sent me a screenshot of one of the news articles last night, and I thought it was a joke um, when I saw it initially. To be honest, um, I am surprised. Yeah, I, you know, Neffet have, I suppose, over the last two years been been cautious, naturally cautious, I think. Um, but you know, the evidence is pretty clear, at least from this wave, that despite even huge levels of infection, um, our hospital systems haven't been overwhelmed, and I think really restrictions were always brought in to protect our health service. Um, and I think the evidence says that in the face of at least this variant, um, our health service um, is going to be okay. And despite being under massive pressure, can it seems cope with it um, and less people are going to end up in hospitals. So, uh, you know, when you look at it like that, really restrictions, in a way, we've become a little bit institutionalised. We're kind of so used to restrictions, it seems strange to take them away. But really, restrictions are very unnatural. They're not the way we should be living. So I think, you know, when the sun shines, we should be making hay. We should be really reducing restrictions when we can, when, when it seems, as I say, that the hospital systems are not going to be overwhelmed. And while no one wants to be a naysayer with such good news, this is not over yet. And for some, it's a particularly big risk. So this was a pertinent point and question from Gavin. Dr Barry, there will be a lot of people listening this morning who don't want to get the virus, who could still get very sick if they get the virus, and they'll be anxious about what's happening. Are they right? Yeah, I think they are right, you know, and and so I suppose this is where I kind of have a a split personality on this um, decision this morning. You know, I think one side of me is so excited, you know, to tell people, to tell my kids who haven't lived a normal life for the last two years, to tell everyone that actually, you know, restrictions are being released. But at the same time, I'm very conscious of many, many people in the population that now are actually probably at an increased risk of infection as a result of this decision, because you know, there is still massive levels of infection in the country. There's huge trains of transmission happening. We don't really know how many people are being infected every day. We've lost complete sight of numbers of infections in the country. Yes. And and so with that still high level of, of virus going around, you know, I think, I suppose it's this mixed message in a way of things are getting better, but the virus by no means has gone away. So there is still that risk of infection and particularly for vulnerable groups and and vulnerable people. um, Yes, there is still that increased risk. And actually, we don't really know who um, could get severe disease from, from this infection. But hopefully, particularly with booster vaccinations, the vast majority of people won't be severely ill from it. Dr Gerald Barry on yesterday's Morning Ireland. And it seems only a few short weeks ago we were scrapping in the supermarket for the last antigen test and watching the rising daily cases. We're on our fifth wave of COVID. So is this another false dawn or do we really have it on the run? Well, on Monday's Morning Ireland, Paul Moyne, a professor of immunology at Maynooth University, spoke to Mary, who gritted her teeth to ask the hard question. I hate to throw a downer into what is a largely positive conversation, but, you know, going on the evidence we have so far and how COVID is behaving and will behave, should we be fearful of a new variant? So I think in terms of when you look at the variance that has arisen, how this has evolved over time, that process is a random one. So these variants arrive through a process called mutations and mutations arise 
mutations are completely random. Many of the mutations are actually damaging to the virus. We never see those mutants arising because they can no longer infect our cells and replicate. In terms of Omicron, the reason why it has become dominant is because those mutations have given it an advantage in terms of being able to infect cells and replicate. But it's less virulent, it causes less severe disease. Now, whether other variants arise which are more or less uh, virulent, again, that's quite a random process. But from the virus point of view, the virus really, the intention is to get in, replicate and then be transmitted onto other individuals. What it causes downstream in terms of illness, again, that's quite a random process. But I still come back to the point with respect to the wall of immunity that we've built up. That will give us protection that even if we are infected, that immunity will kick in, will get rid of the virus and in most cases eliminate the virus before it gets a chance to cause serious illness. And I think that is our hope. And echoing a certain steady-as-she-goes cautious optimism was Dr David Nabarro of the WHO, not a man given to flights of fancy. He spoke to Claire on Monday. Viruses, when they arrive in the human population, are often quite ferocious. But in the succeeding months and years after their arrival, Typically, they go in one of two directions. The first direction is that they just die out. They basically lead to the death of those who they infect. And then there is uh, no way in which the virus can continue to stay alive because it's killed so many of the people who are affected by it. But on the other hand, other viruses over time become milder they not only don't kill the people that they infect, in fact, they actually uh, lead to virtually no disturbance and it becomes a bit like uh, the common cold or other similar transient infections. Uh, And that means that the virus can stick around in the human population, not causing death. That's very good for the virus. It means it continues to multiply. And our anticipation is that this uh, new coronavirus that we first met at the beginning of 2020 will over time become a perfectly calm virus that does not cause major illness, perhaps leads to occasionally a few people unfortunately getting severely ill, but otherwise it will be a little bit like the common cold. And that's where we think this virus eventually is headed. Mm -hmm. But it's not there yet, Claire. Gotcha. Not there yet. That was Monday. And yesterday on the News at One, Brian Dobson checked back in with Dr David Nabarro, who sounded a note of caution and reminded us that there may be bumps on the road ahead. You don't have a nice, neat, smooth trajectory from where we are now to where we hope to be when the pandemic is over. It will be bumpy. It will be difficult. We must expect surprises. We must even suspect perhaps more tricky mutations of the Omicron coming up in the long term. Julie noted. But for now, at least, it's a good day. Spring is coming. And I don't know if I've ever looked forward to one as much as I'm looking forward to this one. Humans are social beings. And we Irish are more social than most. As we look forward to this spring... We need to see each other again. We need to see each other smile. We need to sing again. For all our faults as a country, we have come a long way since this day 
1919, Ireland is now firmly established as an equal among all the nations, and we've been a positive force in the world through our arts, our culture, our peacekeeping, and our commerce. We've done this by having the confidence to be ourselves. As we face into our second century as a free democracy, and as we navigate this new phase of COVID, it is time to be ourselves again. Back in a bit. Welcome back. statement from his family puts it from his heart to your souls don't ever stop rocking meatloaf so many memories and there will be some rocking out this weekend and if you are dusting off the dancing shoes and glitter balls because yeah looks like we're getting back out there again you might also be carrying a few additional covid kilos and who could blame us it was a pandemic after all but whether you're slipping easily into the jeans or perhaps more comfy in the tracksuit don't get too smug here's dietitian orla walsh with anagiri on supercharged from sunday it, it annoys me when you get this kind of um, notion across social media that the people who just say are living lives in smaller bodies are superior. And <laughs> I'm thinking, no, statistically, you're probably just wealthier and live in a greener area and have access to, you know, this and support and healthy food. And there's not a fast food place right beside your house. And there's all these things that are actually building your environment that actually make it more likely that you're living life in a smaller body. So, you know, it's not a morality thing and it frustrates me when people seem to think that they're better because, you know, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Always good to bear in mind. Now, Orla was chatting to Anna mostly about comfort eating. Yes, those crisps dipped in melted whispers when you're just not feeling too hot. But if we do need to rethink our food intake, Walsh posed a few questions about not just what we eat, but how? Am I present when I eat? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and do I eat fast? And do I sit down at a kitchen table and give the meal the respect it deserves? And do I get the maximum enjoy it, enjoyment from food? And do I allow myself to get the maximum enjoyment? It's very normal to love food and love the eating process and get comfort and enjoyment from it and to look forward to meal times. That's a really positive relationship with food. So I would encourage people just slow down, take smaller bites of food. You know, we are supposed to put the knife and fork down between mouthfuls or the spoon down I between honestly mouthfuls. have never done that before. <laughs> I'll just say it straight out. The knife and fork are for me in my hand throughout. Yeah, so it's, it's about slowing down, chewing your food more and being aware of all five senses. And along with those senses, Walsh advocated changing the words we use when we talk about food. Talking about feeling better, I would imagine the language that we use around food is really important. And you'd hear words like, it's bold food, it's bad food, it's a cheat meal. Like, how can that impact on us and our relationship with food? So much, and I think we we all do it and mm-hmm. we all need to keep 
keep on, you know, having a look, standing outside ourselves and looking in and going, what did you just say? And to be aware of what we're doing and what we're saying. And it has a huge impact. You know, if you need to cheat, you're in the wrong relationship. And (laughs) one of the most important relationships you'll ever have is with the food you eat, because food is your best friend. It wants to be your best friend and you want it to be your best friend. So if both of you want that, you can actually build a really lovely, strong relationship. And one of those relationships she recommended was with a raisin and something called the raisin test. It teaches you how to eat a raisin mindfully and that raisin will taste better than it's... I don't particularly even like them. But when I did the, I did that for the first time, I can remember thinking, this is a taste sensation. Who knew? Who knew one, one raisin, solitary raisin, could give me this much enjoyment? We will take your word for that one. Orla Walsh with Anna Geary on Supercharged. Conspiracy theories. Nothing new, really, but what used to be confined to the fringes is now firmly in the mainstream. The Coming Storm is a podcast from the BBC's Gabriel Gatehouse, which traces the rise of QAnon and other conspiracies. And Gatehouse joined Ryan, and his starting point for more recent theories was 1993, and the death of Clinton friend and colleague Vince Foster by suicide. Or was it? Almost immediately, it's clear that he shot himself. But the conspiracy machine, the rumour machine, starts going into motion. And the rumours are, the conspiracy theory is, he was murdered. Who had him murdered? Maybe it was the Clintons. Maybe he knew too much. Too much about what? Well, we don't know, but too much about something. It must have just been something very big for him to wind up dead. Like, it's not true, right? Just just to be clear. Yes, yes. He committed, but... Uh, That was the beginning of something that later became called the Clinton body count, which then morphed into part of this whole story of evil Hillary uh, and her satanic cabal taking over the world for evil purposes. Evil Hillary and her Ryan's bestie? Surely not. But add in an anonymous website, 4chan, and some role-playing that gets quite out of hand, hop, skip and jump, and we're into some very strange stuff Indeed. There was this kind of tradition of what's called LARPing. Uh, and LARP stands for live action role play. It started off as a thing in real life where people, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, I don't know if that rings a bell with some of yep, your listeners, yep. but people would, you know, pretend to be uh, characters from epic, heroic characters and they would dress up and blah, blah, blah in real life, right? But then it moved onto 4chan and it became this thing where people pretended online to be highly placed insiders. So before there was this conspiracy theory called QAnon, before there was this poster named Q who was saying stuff about this battle against the deep state cabal, there was FBI anon, there was CIA anon. Um, So there were all these kinds of people who were pretending to be highly placed insiders in, in positions of power, revealing the secrets that explained the world. And the people who were consuming this on this website Right, they, they all kind of know. Um, they, they kind of know it's a joke, it's a game, but at the same time they're kind of playing along with it, and that's where QAnon comes from. But but something happens with QAnon, whereby it jumps from this very niche website where the users are quite savvy and they know that maybe you don't want to take it too seriously. It jumps onto the mainstream internet. Uh, it jumps to YouTube and Facebook and Reddit, and there, out there, it's, there's, there's this whole other bunch of people who don't know that this is 
that there's a whole tradition behind this. And they, they start taking it seriously. And that's uh, where QAnon really begins. And while never explicitly endorsing these theories, when the most powerful man in the United States, if not the world, Donald Trump, fudges it ever so slightly, well... He's flirting with Q as a phenomenon mm. constantly. You know, do you believe these guys? You know, who think that mm. the whole world is being run by paedophiles and, and the Clintons are in a, in a pizzeria somewhere with their friends doing unspeakable things. Uh, and he says, "Well, you know, they say some good things, and I'm up, I'm up for protecting kids and stuff like that." Uh, and yeah. so you have this this conflation of the most se- senior politics in the world and the most junior conspiracy theory wacko in the world, and they're now allies. Yeah, I'm almost certain that he, he didn't know. There were, there were definitely people in Trump's orbit mm. who were pushing QAnon because they thought it could help him electorally. I think Trump himself really didn't know what it was, but he's, so, he's got such a canny instinct for where he might find support. But what yeah. is interesting, as you say, is the, is the kind of the, the linking of these people, this, this man with huge power with these kids with no power, mm. right? And they were in their mum's basements as sort of young adults. Not just because, you know, they're weirdos or whatever. They're, they were in their mum's basement, a lot of them, because, you know, economically they didn't have any prospects. They, yes. they, they maybe couldn't afford to move out. You know, the, the, the world is changing. The kind, of, um, the kind of economic stability that their parents might have enjoyed and they might have expected simply doesn't exist anymore. They're role-playing powerful people because they have no power. Um, and then suddenly they're... The little story that they made up gets yoked to this incredibly powerful force. Extraordinary. Uh, and and, and that's, what, that's kind of what happened. And the eventual unmasking of QAnon turns out to be a tad underwhelming. Most people think that it was this father and son duo called the Watkinses, Americans who were living in the Philippines, um, who eventually uh, acquired this website where Q, this figure of Q, was posting. They, they stopped posting after the election in 2020. Um, but the movement itself has sort of has had a second life. So it, it's kind of moved on from just being about the sort of cabal of satanic people, and Hillary Clinton, and it's it's kind of linked up with the election was stolen, which is you know, yes. Donald Trump's rallying cry and continues to be. And, and you know now in the Republican Party in America, uh, it's hard to say that you don't believe the election was stolen if you want to have any future in the party, even if you even if you don't believe it. Some things might be here to stay. Ryan with Gabriel Gatehouse on his podcast, The Coming Storm. Now, a gear change. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide? No escape from reality. Open your eyes. If you're feeling frisky or generally up, for a challenge, try taking a deep breath and holding it, which is what Ireland's top free diver Claire Walsh does for a living. She's booked a ray on Monday. Oh, and that Queen song will be explained. Stay holding. So free diving is a sport of holding your breath underwater, so it can be measured in time, uh, in distance, so that's done the pool, and then in depth so that's done open water and I think that's the one that makes free divers turn into that emoji with you know the one with love hearts in their eyes yes that's uh, what we get excited and about. your record is what 
I don't know if it's it's technically the record anymore, but my personal best. Yeah, it's your personal for best. But you, is, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, your so record. It's six, so it's 59 meters. It's one right. of the 60. So I suppose to put that in context, um, Liberty Hall in Dublin, from the top uh, down to the bottom, is 59 meters. Right. So all that on one breath and back up again. And uh, what was that in time? Oh, I can't remember that. That I suppose discipline wouldn't necessarily be measured in time. Uh-huh. I'm slow. Okay. I, I take my time. So what's your time? Person. 559. 559. Yeah. See, there's a pattern. I really don't like sixes apparently at the yes. moment. 559. Mm. Five minutes. So just one second off six minutes. You held your breath. Yes, yeah, so I think it's the, around the length of Bohemian Rhapsody. It is, you're right. Yeah. So it's funny. And I remember uh, one morning my brother in law texted me and he said, Bohemian Rhapsody came on. I had a shower. I made my part. I'm just out the door. The song is still on. So it's like, it's a lengthy song. It is. It's a long, long song. Oh, that it is. But in January 2020, Claire got COVID and she got long COVID. My symptoms were fatigue and <laughs> fatigue has been really, really hard to describe because, you know, you use the word tiredness and everyone's response seems to be, um, but sure, everyone's tired. And I had a lot of people in my life who were new mothers. So those are like, don't talk to me about tiredness. <laughs> you so, don't know what tiredness exactly, is. Exactly. And, and that's probably right. <laughs> but this this was kind of a tiredness in your bones, a kind of an ache. Then I'd get quite a lot of uh, muscle pain, joint ache, sensitivity to light, breathlessness. Um, and when I talk about fatigue, it's, it's not being able to shower and preparing food becomes a mammoth task so there's a lot of time lying flat on my back in my bed curtains closed uh, no screens or blue lights and just you know give your senses just a complete rest oh that is so tough and in all our merriment around the restrictions it's a salutary reminder of just how horrible the covid can be now it's not gone but her energy levels are improving. And just listen to the thrill that she gets from freediving and reaching the point at which she becomes negatively buoyant. So everyone is is positively buoyant, so that means that they'll always go up different points and it's different for men and women. But there is this point now, I wear, you know, a weight belt where you, you stop floating and you start sinking. And it is the most, ma- <laughs> you're making a face like this, this is terrifying. <laughs> it is the most magical feeling. It's like it's being weightless. Everything becomes so easy, so effortless. And that's the real cue, I think, for divers to just soften everything and let go and let it happen. Now you can exhale. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast is a fictionalised memoir of his childhood. And it's getting a lot of sparkle and a lot of chatter. But is it any good? Here's shining their monocles are arena film reviewers Ruth Barton and Michael Pope. Jamie Dornan, Judy Dench as Granny, Kieran Hines as Pop, and and this young Jude Hill that they're all talking about. Fantastic, um, gorgeous yeah. kid. Is, is this heading? I mean, it, there's all sorts of talk about awards. Is it is it heading for awards? Oh, it's got awards written all over it. I mean, as you say, the cast, uh, the look, but also that kind of warm sentimentality, which is it's not a political film. It's a it's a coming. Does of that age matter? Film. 
Um, no, not at all, because it, you come out of the movie feeling feeling good about yourself. And just right now, that's what people would really, mm. you know, give a lot of money for, or certainly the price of a cinema ticket for. So I think, you know, given the profile of Branagh, giving the kind of, a, you know, that you were talking about the ensemble acting, which I think really, really works in this. Uh, and I think people will overlook the kind of basically lack of narrative tension in favour of the kind of mood that it invokes. So, yeah, I, I see I see awards coming its way. And Michael? There's kind of a loop it kind of gets into, even though it's got kind of a refreshingly kind of lean running time, especially for like awards, awards fodder, it yeah. isn't basically 90 minutes. Uh, um, but there's kind of, it kind of does kind of get to a point where it's like Terry in trouble, dad comes home, kitchen sin argument, wisdom from grandparent, high school sweetheart, and then Baron Morrison, and then kind of repeat that for a while, <laughs> which right. is fine. It's a beautiful looking film and it's, it's got a warm heart. So you wouldn't begrudge at that. But, you know, there is a kind of a slight repetitiveness that kind of creeps in. Ooh, little baby quibble. But stars... I really enjoyed it. So four out of five for me. Four out of five. What are you saying, Michael? I'll go for 3.5 out of five. There is, I was a three, but there is a really beautiful coda at the end, which re- really got me right there. So yeah, I'll go 3.5 out of five. I think it's a dance sequence that you loved as well, Ruth, at the I very end. I love yeah. that dance sequence. You can just pick it up on YouTube too. It's all over the place. <laughs> yeah, you'll, get, you'll get it there. All right. From Arena. Now to two words not heard often enough on the radio. Back an alien orgy. I'm sorry, pardon? Back an alien orgy. Back an alien orgy. Well, now, that is the voice of Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, Andrew Bridgen, employing a soupçon of hyperbole to describe the work event in Downing Street, which may well turn out to be Prime Minister Johnson's downfall. Because when a bluer than blue Tory is calling for Boris to sling your hook, the pressure is on. I think the current situation is is untenable. And I'm afraid I've said publicly that given the evidence that's come out of number 10 of what's been going on during the lockdown and the parties, um, it appears that um, Boris Johnson and those around him have been able to do what they want and the rest of us during lockdown have had to do as we're told and that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. And I think the Prime Minister has unfortunately lost the moral authority to lead our country. Also on the line, former Labour Press Secretary to Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell. Do you have any sympathy for him? Frankly, no, because he's the Prime Minister and, you know, Prime Ministers have to expect, excuse my clock, Prime Ministers have to expect to be in difficult situations and put under pressure, but he's the author of his own misfortune and he's the author of the Tory party's misfortune as well and they are the author of his because people like Andrew and other MPs who back Boris Johnson to the hilt, they've always known what it was like. And that sound of a ding and a dong, quite the sign, because this turned into quite the row. People like to think that all politicians are liars. Most politicians are not liars. But you, Andrew, and your party, you put a known, proven liar in charge of our country. And between you, you are damaging so much that is good about our country. And frankly, from my perspective, the sooner the whole rotten lot of you have gone, the better. Andrew. Well, uh, he has his hobby horse to ride. I don't think his, his record's not uh, not one Just I'd argue, want for myself, argue to argue the substance honest. for God's sake. Argue the substance. Is Boris well, Johnson I, I, a liar I, I, or I've not? Come, I've come to I came to the conclusion some weeks ago that Boris Johnson's transgressions were such that he was no longer had my confidence to be the prime minister. I've been very and it took a party. It took a party to tell you that. You're trying to tell me you haven't seen these transgressions before. I, I put I put my letter in. Um, in early December, before party Sorry. started. And in the middle of it all, Dominic Cummings. Do you blame Dominic Cummings here? Um, I probably blame 
number 10 for taking him in in the first place. I Sorry, think Boris Johnson him... took him in. Boris Johnson. It wasn't number 10. It wasn't a building that took him in. It was your leader's judgment. Well, well I think I think given his character, and I, I also got to know him a little white bit through vote leave, I think if, if Cummings had joined the Salvation Army and left, it probably would have ended up the same way. But I, mean, I agree with to, that. Well, to, 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 A, to let Mr Cummings in, he's the author of his own, own, own downfall. And with the exasperated tone of Campbell's I told you so versus Bridgen's who could have predicted this unprecedented times, Claire Byrne had her work cut out. Can you imagine this clown that you've got there who thinks he's Churchill? Can you imagine if this was, that was happening in Ukraine now that they wouldn't all be on the phone to Churchill saying, what do you think, what we should do? Nobody. Johnson's become an we, irrelevant. We were the number one superpower in the world at that time. Andrew, do you we agree with that there? Honestly, you lot are so thick. Andrew, Alistair, Andrew, do you, Charming, oh, sorry, do, you, do you agree that Boris Johnson, Andrew, is a, is a clown? Is he a clown? Um, I not think funny. he can... I think he can he can play the lovable rogue. Um, the, the problem is that um, even members of his own political party are not laughing with him anymore. Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen and former Labour press secretary Alistair Campbell with Clare. Now to some rather random radio moments. Wednesday saw Darcy on the hunt for a peacock called Winston. Waterboys and Hall of the Moon. Now, we have to interrupt normal programming to go live uh, to the Greater Navin area to speak to Verena Stapleton. Um, there is a missing peacock called Winston and Verena is uh, frantically looking to find Winston. Hello, Verena. Hi, Ray. How are you? <laughs> Tell us about this Winston peacock. Is it yours? Uh, it is ours, yeah. Um, so he hatched uh, in an incubator in our house uh, last year in July and we had him ever since. Okay. Until until Sunday. Until Sunday. He went missing on Sunday. Okay. Uh, and what do you know about peacocks? Like, they can fly, obviously, but not far. They, they can fly, indeed. Uh, loads, like the ones you'd normally see in zoos or they would have their flight feathers clipped, but we hadn't done that yet. Oh, no. And uh, so he can take off and he can fly for one and a half kilometres in one go. He wouldn't be long distance, um, no, no. but yeah, short distance flight. And what about walking? He... Yeah, he can cover three to four kilometres uh, when he's walking. Um, there are like emus, ostriches along them lines yeah. to just can uh, cover a fair distance. Tension mounting. Where are you, Winston? That was 28 minutes past three. At 31 minutes past three, this. Yeah, I, I, and you've news for us. We have news, yes. He was spotted uh, just there about half an hour before coming on air. Um, and I got him and he's back. And hey! yeah, it's just incredible. <laughs> I can't believe it. Verena, do you know nothing about radio? You were supposed to leave him lost until you came on and spoke to us and then find him before half four. That's the way radio works. Oh, oh sorry. Apologies there. I missed it, I messed it up now. <laughs> no, I'm delighted. I'm over the moon for you. Oh, we can't. I Winston. can't get over it. I just, yeah, incredible. Delighted, Verena. You're dead to us. Now, Winston did turn up again later in the week looking for a lover, but we leave it there. Meanwhile... By the way, that noise is the oldest chair in RTE. I sit in a... It, it's fallen apart. There's bits of it picked out of the foam of the thing and it and it rolls into a hole in, in the in the ground here. <laughs> so in case you're wondering, what's that? Why, is it, why does he sound like Jacob Marley in, in Christmas Carol? It's because it's, it, it, it's the thing is... Oh, actually, this, 
actually come out of there. Now, there it is. So that's what it is. <laughs> Just <laughs> but you know what? It's like a comfy, comfy old pair of slippers. It's my jalopy. And I like it. And finally, drive time. Ostensibly a story about the rise and potential benefits of double speed learning, courtesy of a new study from UCLA. But really, an excuse for Cormac and Sarah to play Merry Hell. As well as that, as well as the uh, payments, the government has announced an extra bank holiday on March the 18th, just after St. Patrick's Day, which effectively gives people a four-day weekend this year. A notable omission has emerged this afternoon, though, when it was noticed that home carers did not seem to be in line for the payment. Now, representatives for carers have sought clarification as to whether or not they're going to be included in the scheme. (laughs) Sarah, what are you thinking about that? (laughs) You know, though, you can see it. You actually, it worked. Like, I understood myself. I understood you. You know, so you can see how it would work. Yeah, and it's... I dare I say this about us it's slightly annoying but you get yeah. the, you get a you get tongue the gist, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> presenters say they're annoying anyway look um, my I'm, presenter actually uh, said he was annoying I was talking about you come here annoying <laughs> Well, on that note of likeness, that is it from this week's playback. It's been quite the 24 hours. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say. It's all right. It's all right.